I'm sure that Pastor Tom appreciates your encouragement. He oftentimes needs it, so that's good. Good morning. With whatever morning we have left, we begin our study in John chapter 6, verses 52 through somewhere. Okay, so John chapter 6. There's been quite a lot of stuff to learn in a 71-verse chapter, and we're almost there, and because we're coming to the table of communion this morning, we're going to still almost be there, but we're going to conclude next, next week before we move on to chapter 7, of course. But um, it's been a fascinating uh, chapter, primarily because everything revolves around what happened there on that mountainside by the Galilee where Jesus fed the 5,000 men and their families and just upwards of 10 to 12, maybe even 15,000 people, uh, all served by the Lord and his disciples as, as the Lord was just distributing from this little boy's lunch of, of barley cakes and, and, and sardines. And he just continued just to give forth. And, and, and out of that miracle... Jesus wanted to make it really clear to everyone that he was the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of God. I am the living bread who comes from heaven. And this was the message that he wanted to give to get the people focused on the, on the spiritual, not the physical. But of course, when they followed him and they kept wanting to find out where he was, he even told them, he says, you, you come for that bread that you ate. And began to reveal their heart. They wanted to make him a king. Of course, he was already king. But they wanted to force him to be the king against Rome. But it wasn't time. He came with this intention, the eternal intention, eternally intention of bringing salvation to the lost. And all were lost without him. So he says, I'm the living bread who comes from heaven. He who eats of me will have everlasting life. And this became the, the crux of the, of the problem with, with these religious yet humanistic uh, Jews that were so critical of, of Jesus that, that they just murmured about him at first, but then later they just began to have these arguments of, over the things that Jesus was saying. And that's where we are here this morning. I want to begin in verse 47, which is something we studied last time, but use that as context to the next portion that we're going to look at today. In verse 47, Jesus said, and, and I, I emphasize the words verily, verily, because that is him saying to them, as if those who are in a courtroom today, you know, will say, you know, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is pretty much what those words meant in Jesus' time. That anybody claiming that and saying that was saying what was true. 
So you wouldn't say that and then be found to be false because then you would be, of course, either stoned or, you know, whatever else would come from your lying and, and, uh, and all. So he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. He says, if you believe on me right now, you have everlasting life. And the belief part of it is, is, of course, not something of just mental assent, just to say, well, I believe, just like we believe that sun rises every morning. It is believing and trusting and completely depending upon Jesus Christ. In other words, putting our full weight of trust on Jesus. So you'll understand what that word believe means. And then he said, I am that bread of life. What I've been speaking about, I am that bread of life, eternal life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Now, they considered that that manna that they received in the wilderness with Moses was, the, was, was actually something that came from heaven because every morning it would appear and they would gather it together and according to the Lord, gather it, make the food for the day, but not, you know, if you had any left over, don't use it for the next day. He would provide again for the next day. But he says, even though they ate that manna, they still died. And then he said, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven, speaking of himself. He says that a man may eat thereof and not die. So I'm emphasizing this because he is saying, listen, I want you to start thinking and believing and trusting in the spiritual, not the physical. Which means that language here is very important. The language that he uses, the types of language that he uses, the figures of speech that he uses is to make a point spiritually, not physically. All right? I'm really driving that home to you all this morning. I should have done it in the last service. No, I did it. I did. Kind of, kind of sort of. So this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread. Remember what I said about bread. You got to take grain and, and, and crush it, and in, in effect, it dies because it's no longer on the, on the, on the plant, it's no longer on the vine, you know, and you crush it, and uh, to, when it comes, becomes powder, it becomes, uh, you know, like flour, and then, of course, then you make your bread, but it has to die. But Jesus said, I, I, I'm going to die, but I'm going to live again. I am the living bread. Again, it's a spiritual understanding. I am the living bread which cometh down, or came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And if you remember last time, I said there were two problems that the people had with the things that Jesus was saying. First of all, they said, Jesus, don't confuse me with the facts, the facts of who he was. Secondly, don't confuse me with your flesh because this is totally taking me out of, of my comfort zone. When you start talking about flesh, what were they thinking? Right? Okay. The Jews therefore strove among themselves. They argued and debated among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, truthfully, truthfully, it's all true. I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, 
and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Folks, this is deep. But he hasn't changed what he's t- the way he's speaking to them spiritually. As the living Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so, had, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. You know, Jesus knew exactly when to repeat things. And this whole section is something that is very repetitive, but it's repetitive for a reason. Get it into your minds and into your hearts, folks, is what he's saying. And these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, we'll get to this verse later, but I want to mention it because so far, it appears that this whole chapter up to this point has really been taking place over a period of only two days. Only two days. This particular verse probably carries us a few more days into, into this discussion. But we'll get back to that in just a moment. It's been said that when you get two rabbis together to discuss an issue, you'll get three opinions. Don't tell me. First service got it right away. I I commended them for being wide awake this morning. It's been said that when you get two rabbis together to discuss an issue, you'll get three opinions. All right. Okay. Yes, make me feel good. Laugh. I don't care. That may be a humorous exaggeration, but as we consider our text today, that very well may be what the words of Jesus to this crowd of people stirred them to. All kinds of opinions. They were trying to understand some of them. Others were just taking his words at face value. Still others were confused. And that causes a great debate among people, doesn't it? We're told that the the religious critics of Jesus were striving among themselves. In a word, they were arguing, they were fussing, they were debating quite vocally and visibly over the words of Jesus. Which words? Verse 51, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And, of course, then they began to wonder, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Some of them may have interpreted Jesus' words as a parable in a figurative, symbolic way. They knew how often Jesus had spoken in parables. Others had no idea what he meant, but they did see that he was claiming to be the most important person in the world because by what he was saying, he was saying that he was the very Savior of men. He was saying he was the Messiah of Israel. And that bothered them beyond reason. How could any man claim to be so important to the world? (sighs) As people who were foundationally materialists and humanists, even though they were religious, nonetheless, they asked, how can this be? He's but a man. How, How can he give his flesh for the world and the world receive eternal life? How can that be? There are also many who have who listened and 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 actually became believers. Because their hearts were softened to what Jesus was saying. And they understood how he was saying what he was saying. 
And they became disciples who understood Jesus for a time. I'll say for a time. And you'll see why at the end of this chapter. But those who were the most opposed to the sayings of Jesus didn't recognize that he again was using a figure of speech, which is called in theology a synecdoche, in which a part is put for the whole. Flesh here is used for the Lord himself. The word flesh. When he uses the word flesh, he's speaking of himself. Or what he said could be viewed as, as well as a metaphor. We've, we talked about that last time. A metaphor where, where one thing is declared to be something else. Both are common figures of speech in Scripture and also in everyday life. We live by metaphor many times. Not all the time, but, you know, we, we use examples, as you'll see today. The critical Jews were arguing, fussing, and debating, and trying to grasp the fact the fact that the Lord was, was using a figure of speech. I mean, that's what their argument was about, in a sense. But yet, they concluded, some of them concluded that he was suggesting some form of cannibalism. Right? And he, was, he was suggesting, you have to eat my flesh. Now, folks, I, I, I need to use this. I know I've said this already, but certain areas of, of the church, certain areas of, of, of the Christian sect, or certain Christian sects, I should say, have this uh, uh, idea or theology or belief that in t partaking of communion, as we're going to partake of today, with the, with, with the bread and the cup, they will say that at, at a certain moment in, in, a, in a service, that bread and that cup become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. I have to tell you that this is not what the Bible teaches. And I also have to tell you that it is really a ridiculous thing. What does that, what does that mean? By taking a statement, as we said last time, none of this pertains to the communion of the church because it hadn't yet been established in the church. So Jesus is talking in a totally different arena of thought. Now we understand that cannibalism is the literal eating of flesh, which Jesus would never suggest, by the way, because he also mentions blood, doesn't he? So let's consider the very fact that Jesus would never suggest this because Jesus would never contradict his word. And his word in the law, Leviticus chapter 17 says this, Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you, because there were those who followed after the, the, the God of the Jews who were, who were Gentiles. So it says, but this included anyone following him. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, notice, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It has become the type of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. 
Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh, the blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, You shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. Jesus would never suggest in any way, shape, or form the taking in of blood as, as some type of food or even a part of food. And the eating of flesh, when the Lord gave the commandment to allow the eating of certain animals, there were certain animals that could be eaten. They were to be clean. They were kosher. And other animals, they were unclean, they were not to be eaten. Well, nowhere do we see the, you know, the eating of flesh in the Scriptures as being anything uh, to do. So, the critics of Jesus then here are disturbed. They're confused, they're offended. Some were willfully misinterpreting what the Lord was saying. You know that goes on today in the political arena. Many people in the political arena willfully misinterpret what another person is saying. That's going on in all these debates that we see on TV nowadays for the presidency. Sad but true. So consider that that happened back then in the time of Jesus. They saw this as an opportunity to say, did you hear what he said? You know, we could use this against him. How many times did they do that with the things that Jesus said? That they were ready to pick up stones and stone him. In many cases, they really didn't hear what he was saying. In other cases, they just twisted what he said. In either way, they revealed their hearts. And that's part of the understanding of what we're seeing in this passage today. They were angry, they were perplexed, and they were getting in others' throats about what he meant and how they should respond to him. And once again, the principle of speaking in obscure statements to harden some and to soften others is the method that Jesus chose to use in this battle of words. <clears throat> I know I've used this illustration before, but as the sun can soften and melt wax... It can also harden and dry mud into fallow, cracked, uncultivated ground. The same sun at the very same time. Sun can melt wax. The wax has become responsive to the heat of the sun and it melts. But the same sun at the same time can harden can harden the mud of fallow ground, uncultivated ground, which when it happens that way, the ground is no good. In effect, it becomes unresponsive. My question for you today concerning the truth of God's Word is this. Is your heart responsive to the Word of God? Is your heart responsive to the Word that when it is presented to you, it, it 
melts your heart. It melts your heart. It melts you to, to submit to the power of God, to the love of God, to the mercies of Christ. Or is it hardened? Is your heart hardened by the word to the point of rejecting its truths? Truly only God knows our hearts. But the very same word that can go forth in this place today will melt some and possibly harden others. I would hope and pray it doesn't. I would hope and pray it melts every heart because we came here to honor Jesus Christ. And in honoring him, we acknowledge that we believe and trust his word. So consider then that after they are quarreling amongst themselves. And by the way, let me go back because I don't want to miss this, this point, but, but the fact of the matter is the hardening of hearts is just the confirmation that these hearts have rejected God. Just as the heart of Pharaoh, when God hardened his heart for not letting the people of God go from, his, from Egypt. So when he finally made that last statement, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. That was it. That was that strong delusion to believe a lie that we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So, keep that in mind. But after they're quarreling amongst themselves, Jesus just continues in the same vein, the way that he's presenting, but it gets even stronger. Listen to what he says in verse 53. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Is he talking about that in the physical? Of course not, because he didn't begin that way. He continues, but it becomes stronger. His words become even more picturesque in the sense that now he talks about flesh and about blood. And he says, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. And this is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. That in itself should have said, hey, this is spiritual talk. But this was an even more shocking proclamation that Jesus gave. Unless a person partake, now listen, unless a person partake, which is to receive him completely, when you, when you get ready to go later on this afternoon to watch something on TV today, and you know, you've gathered and you've brought some, you know, some food and all of that, when you start to eat, aren't you eating it all? And I don't mean everything on front of you, you know. What I'm saying is what, what you put in your mouth, you don't put something in your mouth and take a little bit out, you know, because you, no, 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 you take the whole thing. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you understand what I'm saying. You take in fully. You take in fully. You receive him completely. Unless a person partake in that way of Jesus Christ. Not just some things that you like about Jesus. Oh, Jesus is so wonderful. He's so good. He's so kind. How come, you know, why do we ever have to apply, you know, some, some tag on Jesus that he's going to come and judge? You know, no, no, no. He's, he's all about love and all of that. No, no. You got to take everything about Jesus in. Everything that he is. 
everything that he came to be for us. So when you receive him completely, that person that doesn't do that has no life dwelling in him. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. If you don't take me completely, you've got no life. Understand that in verses 51 and 53. So I'm going to urge you to look at your Bibles and mark these things in your Bibles that in verses 51 and verse 53, the usage of the words eat and drink are in what is called the Greek aorist tense, which means what Jesus was saying in those two verses is this is a once for all act. It is a once for all act. Jesus was not speaking of partaking time and time and time again in those two verses, 51 and 53. He wasn't speaking of feasting on him day by day. No, he was speaking of a one-time event. A person is to eat and drink of Christ, that is, receive him once for all. In other words, you are receiving him because you believe in him for salvation. When you came to Christ, you confessed Jesus with your mouth and you believed in your heart that he's risen from the dead and you were told that Paul said, using those terms in, in, in Romans chapter 10, that you are saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation comes. Do you have to do that again? If you're truly saved, if you're truly changed, no, we don't have to do it again. It's a once for all act. You all understand that? Okay, go like this. All right, you understand? Okay, I got. I have to. I have to. I have to make you interactive here. You know, with with everything. So this is the point. A person must receive Christ into his very life, into his very heart, into his very innermost being, if he wishes to live eternally. He is dead spiritually and eternally unless he so receives Christ, partaking. Eating and drinking of Christ is absolutely essential in order to live eternally. In order to possess real life that lasts now and forever. And we have verses of Scripture that are confirming to this. For example, Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, you, And you has he quickened. In other words, you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were made alive. Why? Because you were dead spiritually. You're, you're alive physically, but you're dead spiritually if you, if you don't have Christ in your life. Right? Now, I, I venture to say that most of you, if not all of you, are, are uh, alive spirit, uh, physically today. Please be alive spiritually. We have some problems that we're not. I would hope that most of you are alive spiritually. But in case you're not, you need to take Jesus in today. You need to take him in to your life today. Believe in him. Paul later on in Ephesians 5.14 says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. He uses two terms, awake from sleep and arise from the dead. He's really speaking about the same thing, because when they talked about sleep in those days, it was a terminology, it was a figure of speech of death. Spiritual death. So awake from your spiritual slumber and be made alive. Arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. 
In Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So these are the references that tell us that if we do not have Jesus Christ completely and totally, and I can say this, some people believe that they know about Jesus, that's not enough. It's not enough about knowing about Jesus. You have to have Jesus completely in your life. So that, are we clear about that? Okay. But with salvation, there must be growth. With salvation comes growth. He doesn't leave us as babes. The book of Hebrews, when Paul wrote that, was, was, was making it very clear that some people were still drinking milk instead of eating good meat from the Word of God. So they hadn't grown spiritually. So there is growth that is to take place when you come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to the knowledge of what He came to do for us. Verse 54 gives us now the indication that growth is to come. This way, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, the reason I, uh, it may not sound the way I'm explaining it, 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 it all depends on how we understand the word for eat and drink in this particular verse. So the first result of partaking in and receiving Christ, the bread of life, is eternal life. We already knew that up to this point. But here in verse 54, uh, uh, Jesus uses two different Greek words here. And in fact, what, what John does is John, who's writing this, uh, hears Jesus say these things and, and, and then puts it down in these Greek terms that are different than verses 51 and 53. Because it's in a different tense, it's a different word. Here in verse 54, the word eat and or eateth, as it were, uh, in, the, in the King James, eat or eateth, not eateth like E-D-I-T-H, but eateth like E-A-T-E-T-H. Okay, so if anybody's here named Edith, we're not talking about you. All right. So the word eat here, which is different in verses 51 and 53, the word here is the Greek word trogon, T-R-O-G-O-N, trogon. Now I'm studying this and looking at the Greek, and, I'm gonna, and I say, trogon. You know, that's very similar, sounds very similar to a Spanish word, dragon. And I'm very familiar with that word because I tell you, my, my mom used to say, no seas tan dragon. I said, mom, how am I going to be this big if I'm not, you know, partaking? <laughs> ay, ay, ay. The things we think of sometimes. But the word is trogon, T-R-O-G-O-N, for the word eat. It's different in that it means to eat eagerly, to grasp for chunks, to eat with pleasure. Look how similar it is to being a dragon. I mean, come on. All right. But it is the picture, seriously speaking, it is the picture of hungering after Christ and eagerly wanting to feed and to feast on Him. But the tense is also different. As I said before, the words in, in, uh, in verses 51 and 53 had the aorist tense of being a once-for-all act. But here, it's different. It's in the present participle tense, which means it is a continuous or repeated action. So you want more of Jesus. You, you have Jesus, but you want more, and you want to grow more. Why? Because the more you eat, the more you grow. I mean, in a good sense. 
You know, the more you eat of the Lord, the more you grow in the Lord. And that's what He wants us to do. He wants us to grow in maturity. He wants us to grow in wisdom and and understanding and grace. And we do that. We begin to learn the Word and we begin to grow more into understanding what the Word tells us because we're taking that time to appreciate and to take in as much of Jesus as we can. So a person must continue to eat and to develop and to grow into the habit of feasting upon Jesus. The picture here is for the faithful to grow day by day by day by day by day. But the benefits are astounding. The benefits are great. I mean, it's abundant eternal life. The conquest of death and resurrection. Those are just some of the benefits of partaking in Christ daily. We're going to study more about it. We've already studied a little bit about it. For example, in John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He wants us to have abundant, a rich, abundant, eternal life. And then in John chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus He says, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, speaking of himself actually, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This is very, very critical for us to understand that we need to know God. God wants us to know him. God wants us to know his son, Jesus Christ. We are to know him, not just about him, but to know Him. Totally different. It's a totally different concept than just knowing about. But what we studied back in John chapter 5 is something that we need to remember. Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Everybody's going to rise again, but it depends on where you go after that. Those that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll rise to eternal life. Those that have rejected unto the resurrection of damnation and judgment. Jesus said, I can of my own self do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of the Father which has sent me. So following the benefits of salvation in receiving and partaking in Jesus Christ comes the result of, true, of, of satisfaction. So remember, from salvation to satisfaction. When we're dealing with this issue of partaking in Jesus, salvation, satisfaction. But it's true satisfaction, not false satisfaction. We see this in verse 55 of our text. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And the key to understanding what I just said is, verse, is the word indeed. Because the word indeed here is the word alethes in the Greek, which means true as opposed to false. True as opposed to false. Now, we can get deeper into that word by, by looking at a connected uh, word in, in John 1, 9 that uh, says that was the true light. 
The word true there is connected, is, is related to the word alethes. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That word is actually the word alethinos, which means the true, the genuine, and the real. The true, the genuine, and the real. It is the opposite of the unreal. It is the opposite of the fictitious. It is the opposite of the counterfeit. It is the opposite of the imaginary. And so with that in mind, the things of this world do not feed and fill men. Not with a true satisfaction. Once again, pertaining to a little later on in this afternoon, you'll get together and you'll sit around a table with all kinds of goodies, and you're going to eat of those goodies while you watch 22 men on a field beating each other up. And you're going to be satisfied to some extent, maybe more than satisfied. But you're not going to say at that moment, well, I am so satisfied, I'll be satisfied for the rest of my life. No, because probably later on you'll say, you know what, I have a little room later left. I just, not quite as satisfied as I was earlier, so I'm going to have a little bit more. And then you go to bed, and then in the morning you get up and you what? You've got to start the whole process all over again. And you say, oh, I'm hungry. And then you get satisfied for a little while. And then you can go on and do what you got to do. And then what happens? Then, oh, it's lunchtime. Got to get satisfied. Right? So you all understand what's going on here. Worldly pleasures and satisfactions be, actually become false. They become false simply because they do not last permanently. Not with full assurance, not with confidence, and not with security. Worldly pleasures always leave men somewhat empty, dissatisfied, craving, void, unassured, and wondering if this world is all there is. Wondering if there is not more to life than what this world and its possessions have to offer. How many times do we hear about people who are millionaires, billionaires, rock musicians, and, and all kinds of other people that... that just, you know, have, they have everything that they could ever want in this life. Yet they sit alone at night and they say, I have nothing. I feel so empty. And many of these people at some point write a note and they leave it for someone and say, I'm just lonely. And they take their own lives. How many times do we hear about that? True satisfaction comes from receiving Jesus Christ into one's life. And it comes only through Him. Only through Him. This is the Lord's point in this verse. Just as real life on the earth comes from eating and drinking food, so real and abundant life comes from eating and drinking Christ. A complete surrender to Him. This, this is the reason why we need to understand when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way is the path. The truth is the understanding of Him. But the life 
together is what satisfies for eternity. He said, no man cometh unto the Father except by me. There's no other way to have that kind of eternal satisfaction except in Jesus Christ. And so you have to, you have to take him in completely. That is a complete surrender to him. Now let me give you an idea here. You know, we, we're talking a little bit about figures of speech and, and metaphors and, al- and analogies and all of that kind of stuff. But listen, when you eat something, and Jesus, Jesus opened this door for us, right, to talk about eating today. But when you eat something, some people think that food has surrendered to you, right? It's sitting in front of you. You put as much as you wanted on your plate, and so you go for it, right? You, it's surrendered to you? No. As soon as you take it into your body, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you've taken in, you've had to surrender to it and what it's going to do in you. Do you see the importance of understanding that when Jesus comes into your life? When, you, when he comes into your life, you don't control him. He controls you. He completes you. We surrender to him. We surrender to his strength. We surrender to his nourishment. We surrender to his word. We surrender to his desires because now that becomes our desire. The things of God. We surrender as soon as we take Him in. Receiving what He has for us and establishing through this partaking a deep relationship with Him. Folks, He wants to have a deep relationship with every one of us here. You might say, well, you know, you pastors, you guys have a deep relationship. Hey, that's not what it's about. That's not what the Bible says. He wants all of us who are believers to have a deep relationship with Him. He wants us all to have that intimate fellowship with Him. You can have it just as much as anyone else in this room can have it. But you've got a hunger for it. You've got a hunger for it. One must receive Jesus in the closest and most intimate and nourishing sense in order to have true life. Life that is abundant and full of assurance and strength and meekness and goodness and love and security and decisiveness and soberness and patience and joy and confidence and courage and faith and gentleness and peace. I don't know if you noticed, but in, in that whole list that I just gave you, the fruit of the Spirit is all of, the, all of that in there. You know, It's having the fruit of the Spirit in you. All of those things. When you take Jesus in. In the most intimate and nourishing way. And this is why Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not just something we do on Sundays. We're kidding ourselves if we only seek after the Lord on one day a week. As long as you have life, as long as you have breath, as long as the Lord has given you the life that you have, you need to be hungering for Him and thirsting for Him. 
and thirsting after his righteousness. Oh, what a, what a difference a church would be if we were hungering and thirsting for his righteousness and not for something that would please us temporarily like some entertainment thing. I'm tired of entertainment in the church. I think that's one of the deceptions of the enemy. Because it's, took, it's, it's trying to touch your flesh, not your spirit, folks. The Word of God has to be the most important thing that we come to church for. Yes? It's not about a personality. I hate to think in terms of personalities. Because then you have to get into this area of being slick. Man, I'm the, the least slick person around, man. Chubby, old, at times cranky. But all the while, just wanting to do what Jesus wants me to do. And he made it very clear. You teach my people my word. That's what I got to do. It's not about me. It's not about anybody. It's about Jesus. We learn to love one another. We learn to support one another, strengthen one another by our presence, by our encouragement, by our, by, by our uh, comfort that we give to others. But it all has to be done in the wisdom of God's Word. I love the words of Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness. Isn't God good? Isn't God good every day? Isn't He good to you? You know, don't, don't sit around and say, yes, because you didn't get something that you really wanted. You know, God's not really all that good. No, 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 He's good all the time. As a matter of fact, if He kept something from you, that's pretty good. Because He knows that, some, that something that you might desire is going to be something that might take you away from Him. Right? I mean, what's the perspective then? Our perspective or his? I'd rather have his perspective. That's why he's always good. If he keeps something from us that we want because we only want it for the flesh, hey, that's a good thing he took it away. So that's good. So all oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. But notice the next verse. For he satisfies the longing soul. He's the one that satisfies us. Not anyone else, not anything else. Jesus satisfies us. And fills the hungry soul with goodness. So from salvation and satisfaction now we come to supernatural companionship and fellowship. Supernatural companionship and fellowship. And we see this in verse 56 of our text. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. This is seen in the word dwelleth, which is the word mene in the, in the Greek. It means to abide, to continue, to dwell, to rest in and rest upon. It is being fixed and set and remaining there, continuing on and on and on with Jesus. Dwelling like if, you know, you're just like in a house, wherever you go, you're surrounded by this house and Jesus is in it and you are too. Doesn't that sound good? Am I getting too excited for you? Because you're just sitting there like, wow, what's going on with that guy? I'm excited about this dwelling with him and him and us. Such is the state and condition and being of a person who receives and partakes of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
This is the reason why I love Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is my favorite verse, but you'll say, wait a minute, you said the other one was your favorite. Well, it's, they're all my favorites. They're all my favorites. But this one, in this respect, for what it says, I am crucified with Christ. What is Paul saying? And what are we saying if we believe this? We are saying we have died to ourselves by being crucified with Christ. We identify with his death on our behalf, but we die to ourselves. Nevertheless, I live. Ah, we're alive. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. You see, the source of our life before Jesus in our life is just what we have. A heart beating, pumping blood, so, so many you know, gallons a minute or whatever it is. And, and that's it. That's what we've got. We've got a physical life going on, you know. And we have to go into doctors and check it all the time, and this is it. And, and you know, when the, the clicker starts click, stops clicking, that's it. You know, vamanos, goodbye, right? But not with Jesus. He says, Paul says, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Now I have a new life, and it's Jesus in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Motivated by his love, we live and we move. And we have our being. And yes, we still have the clicker that keeps clicking. And one day that clicker may stop clicking here. But our life goes on because we're in Jesus and Jesus is in us. Don't make your physical life more important than your spiritual life. I know that you might not like to hear that, but I'm telling you what the scriptures are telling us. Don't make your physical life more important than your spiritual life. Think about what John says in 1 John 3, verses 23 and 24. He says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwells in him, and he in him. So there are things that we need to do. We need to keep his word. We need to obey, which is better than sacrifice. But in this case, he says, and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that, the, that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. Oh, the preciousness of the, of the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives, folks. We need his Spirit in us. And we can only have the Spirit of God in us if we have Jesus. We can't even say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So think about that for a moment. But it's the words of Jesus which are going to bring us to the table of communion this morning that I want you to see and I want you to meditate upon today. Abide in me, he says, and I in you. Dwell in me. Continue with me. Rest in me and upon me. Abide and dwell in me and I in you. That's, that's part of this whole process here. 
Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Is this figurative spiritual language? Of course it is, because as I look around, you are the branches, but I don't see any twigs or leaves or anything. You see? You see how they took the words of Jesus and, and misinterpreted him willfully when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood? And all along, he uses these kinds of figures of speech all the time to teach us spiritual things. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You can do nothing, you can do, you, you can do nothing without me. What we can do with him is be connected to him and because of him and because of his wisdom and because of his nourishment and strength that he gives us, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? I'm so glad you're pondering these things so deeply today. But it's a joy. And it gives us a little bit of a reason to understand what this kind of communion is all about. Because again, chapter 6 of John is not about this communion because it hasn't even been instituted yet in the church. In John chapter 6. But what we can do for today is focus our attention on the truth of His abiding in us and we in Him. Therefore, let's look at things three ways today. First of all, this communion, we remember in the past, we remember what Jesus did on our behalf. That he became the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He took upon himself flesh so that he could come and do what we cannot do for ourselves. He came to die on our behalf as the pure and spotless Lamb of God. And he gave himself for us. Remember, He says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember him. So we look at the past. We acknowledge him in our present. We acknowledge his presence now. We acknowledge his love for us now. Therefore, we have to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith. The faith of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And then we look to his coming again because communion reminds us that he's coming again. Even Jesus, every time this communion is mentioned in Scripture, it speaks of his coming. Jesus even said, I'll, I'll quote something from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus said, we won't do this until I come again. So it is a reminder that he's coming again. Let's keep these things in mind so that we can live hungering and thirsting for his righteousness every day until Jesus comes for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And this afternoon, the service and all that you would have us to understand, Lord, about yourself, about receiving you, and knowing how deep our relationship is to be with you. We ask, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with wisdom and grace and understanding to the things that we have read and learned today. 
I pray, Father, that you will give us that wisdom to be discerning about the things that we see in our lives that could lead us astray. Give us discernment, Lord. Give us desires, Lord God, that are your desires. Help us to dedicate our lives today to devote them, Lord, in everything that we do to you. And we think now, Lord God, upon these things as we hold this bread and cup. Help us, Lord, to examine ourselves rightly. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.